Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm the director of the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. And I'd like to welcome you to the book forum we're having today, which I expect to be a lot of fun and a very interesting one. Uh, the book in question is by Joseph Gibson, A Better Congress, Change the, the Rules, Change the Results, A Modest Proposal. Um, as you may know from being here before for one of our book forums, what we're going to do today is hear from Mr. Gibson, first of all, talk about his book, uh, some of the reasons for it, some of uh, the arguments he makes in it. Uh, that'll be followed by our commentator today, Bill Frenzel. Uh, and then uh, for about a half hour or so, we'll have questions and answers, your own questions, your own ideas about how to reform Congress we'll turn to. Uh, and then after that, a brief reception upstairs. Um, now, I guess I should say only th one other thing in terms of administrative uh, undertaking at this point. Please turn off your cell phones. There'll be some more when we get to the question and answers parts. Um, today's topic, Congress, is one that uh, to me has a very striking background to it. If you, I, for purposes of this, I went and looked at the Gallup polls about Congress over the last uh, 20 years or so, really. Uh, since at least 1993, Gallup has been asking the American public about the approval of Congress. Do you approve of how Congress is working? Um, and it's really remarkable. If you look at all of those polls together, and there's been over 100 of them, what you find is that the bottom 10% in scores, that is the highest, really the lowest approval ratings of that period, uh, almost all of them come, all of them do come in the 2008 to 2010 period. So you've got the lowest scores. And in particular, eight of the 10 lowest approval scores for Congress, according to Gallup, come in the 2010-2011 period. This is, again, going back not just one year or two, but going back over the last 20 years. And you have to think of all the bad things that have happened in that period. That's a remarkable story. Congress is, in the public's mind, getting near the bottom. And in fact, the lowest approval score for Congress that Gallup has ever come across, and this is going back to the 1970s, happened last December. And from that bottom, Congress has not risen very far, I can tell you. If you look over the long term, uh, back again to the Watergate period, what you see is that, and draw lines through it, look at the trend in approval of Congress, confidence in Congress among the public, what you find is during that over the whole period down to where we are now, a declining trend. That is, we are at the bottom of a really 20 or 30 year period. And those uh, approval ratings, the confidence that the public has in Congress is really much lower. And this is for the purpose of the Constitution, for separation of powers issues, it's much lower than the Supreme Court or the presidency. Now, true, it's the economic situation we're in now and have been in since 2008 has something to do with it, but it doesn't explain the whole thing. In particular, over a 30-year period, if you're looking at a downward trend, there's been good times and bad economic times during that period, so it's hard for the economy to explain that long downward slope. Um, at the same time, I was also thinking about, in preparing for this, that... Um, 
You know, in our current de- debt ceiling debate, as, w- as we go through this, a lot of people are complaining and saying, a lot of people in the media, that Congress is not working. But you, you think about it, the people that they're complaining about are really the House Republicans who are holding up agreement because, like in 1994, they believe they have an obligation that was enforced by being elected and a kind of mandate from their voters, an obligation they have to honor to act on principle and try to lower spending. So the system is not working to reach a quick agreement on the debt ceiling or the budget. And that leads also to unhappiness, at least uh, among elites and among the media. But if Congress were working, on the other hand, it's possible that we'd be going down a path, more than possible, of fiscal crisis and decline. So it's not so easy to say what does it mean when Congress is working, not working, and the, the extent to which the dissatisfactions are rooted in sensible kinds of analysis is also an open question. So that's why I came across this book by Joseph Gibson, just learned about it and read it. I was very interested in it because it is a great combination of scholarship, which uh, Mr. Gibson gives you really in this book a sense of what political scientists and others who have studied uh, Congress and from his own experiences working in Congress, uh, how Congress actually works, and then poses some reforms. And, of course, with uh, scholars, you often they're very incremental and don't want to take big imaginative leaps and proposals. Here in this book, you get that. He puts a lot out there. It's a very interesting combination. So I thought it'd be a great idea for people who enjoy uh, coming to, to uh, Cato Book Forums and for the idea of liberty that we have some discussion of this. So let's begin with uh, Joseph Gibson. He, Joseph uh, Gibson has worked in and around Congress for almost 30 years now, since 1982. He last worked in Congress as the Chief Minority Counsel to the House Judiciary Committee under Chairman Lamar Smith when he was ranking member. In that capacity, Mr. Gibson served as the top, uh, top staff member for the committee's Republican members and advised them on all and political and legal aspects of the committee's business. He was also chief of staff in Chairman Smith's personal office during his campaign to become Republican leader on the committee. Prior to that, uh, Mr. Gibson worked as the committee's chief legislative counsel and parliamentarian and as its chief antitrust counsel. He was involved in numerous pieces of legislation uh, before the committee and uh, has worked in a a variety of areas of importance uh, within there and, of course, extensive congressional experience. He also worked in the Department of Justice as a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legislative Affairs and as an advisor to the Assistant Attorney General for the Antitrust Division. Uh, Joseph Gibson earned his J.D. from Yale Law School and in 1983 graduated magna cum laude with a B.A. in political science from Yale University. He's the author of another book uh, on Congress called Persuading Congress, and this book, A Better Congress, was a finalist for the Independent Book Publishers Association 2011 Ben Franklin Award at the Political and Current Events category. Joseph Gibson. Well, thank you all for coming, slogging out through the heat today. Uh, I know it's hot out there, and I appreciate you all making it out. Thanks, John, for uh, uh, the nice introduction, and thank you to the Cato Institute for sponsoring this uh, forum, and thank you, Congressman Frenzel, for coming out as well. Um, 
John and I scheduled this uh, a couple of months ago, uh, and at the time, we didn't have any idea that Congress would be so publicly engaged in demonstrating the book's thesis that Congress doesn't work very well on this day, uh, but our timing has turned out to be uh, exquisite. Um, let me start off by giving you some sort of general contextual things about the book and where I'm coming from in writing the book, and then we'll get into the meat of it uh, as we go on. Um, first of all, uh, as, as John said, I, I worked on congressional staff for, for a number of years and have worked in and around Congress for a long time. Uh, and so this is a very practical book. Uh, I, was, uh, I, I was one who was in the arena. I was not observing the events from an ivory tower. I was in there uh, trying to get bills passed, trying to win markups, the whole thing for a long time. So this is very much a practitioner's book. Um, it is, uh, and it is one who's been on in the boiler room trying to get the engine to work. Uh, so it's observations and suggestions from that uh, perspective. It is not uh, particularly a scientific book. Uh, it doesn't have some big overarching theory. Uh, it, is, it is let's make the car run on time. Uh, uh, and in that vein. Uh, some of the suggestions uh, are more, uh, in all, all cases of the suggestions in the book, I've tried to sketch out some route uh, to how they practically could be enacted. And I fully realize that it, some of those are easy, some of those are hard, some of them are things that could be done next week, some of them are things that might take 10 to 20 years to do. But in all cases, I like to at least suggest a theory as to how it might actually happen in practice. So that was one of the guiding principles. I didn't want to suggest things that I knew there was no way uh, they could ever happen. Uh, and connected with that, uh, I did not suggest things that require constitutional amendments. Uh, one, for one reason, uh, just the practical perspective, they're very difficult to enact and they take a very long time. But also I believe that uh, the, uh, the constitutional framework of Congress is basically sound uh, and most of our problems with how Congress works arise from other rules and practices that have been put on top of the Constitution uh, in, in over the years. Uh, and then finally, on the general context, uh, I, I see this book as the beginning of a conversation, not the end. It, it is uh, designed to provoke debate and stimulate thought. I don't necessarily <coughs> think uh, that all the suggestions I have are perfect solutions. And if anybody who reads this book uh, uh, is inspired to come up with better solutions, uh, that, that would be great, because uh, we certainly need them uh, in our current uh, state of affairs. So let me talk uh, briefly about generally what the thesis of the book is substantively, and then, then I'll get into some more specifics. Uh, the basic thesis of this book is that members of Congress are human beings, and like all other human beings, they respond to the incentives that are in front of them. Uh, all of us do that every day, and members of Congress are no different. Uh, for a variety of reasons, which we'll get into in a moment, the, the structure of incentives that they face today leads them to behave in ways that produce bad public policy results on the whole. Uh, and then finally, if we change those incentives, uh, we can change the results that they get, thus the name, change the rules, change the results. So that's the, what I'm driving at in the book. Uh, and now let me uh, turn to what I think some of those perverse incentives are. Uh, and I'm not going to cover everything that's in the book. I'm just going to hit some of the highlights. Uh, one of the first uh, things that has changed about Congress over, say, the last 50 years 
is there's a very strong incentive nowadays uh, that when you get elected to Congress, you come and you make a career change. If you were a doctor, if you were a lawyer, you're not going to be a doctor or a lawyer anymore. You're going to be a congressman. That was not always the case. Uh, and, and up until, say, the 50s, 60s, and, and that's a sort of a gradual change over time. But now it's extremely difficult to run for Congress. It takes a massive effort. Uh, it takes a year or two of your life. You pretty much have to give up. Uh, whatever job it is you're doing before you get there, you have to be extremely determined uh, to mount a campaign for Congress. Uh, and so most people, when they get here, uh, they, they want to stay. Uh, and the ethics rules uh, also basically require you to do it because you're not allowed to earn any outside income of any uh, to, to, to amount to anything. And an interesting <clears throat> example of that is if you all know Senator Coburn, who is an OBGYN in real life, uh, for a long time, uh, still managed to maintain his medical practice on the weekends when he went home. And eventually, the Ethics Committee decided that even that somehow was an ethical problem uh, and that, that they basically required him to stop doing that. So if you're going to have that rule, then you're probably going to have people making this as a, making a career out of it. The problem with that from a, from a public policy, uh, uh, in a, from a results perspective, is members become so focused on re-election uh, that everything else goes out the window, and, and all, all their public policy decisions become bound up with their reelection. So that's one perverse incentive. Uh, bound up with that is, is the incentive to lose touch uh, over time. And the vast majority of members of Congress do not face serious competitive threats. E even last year, 2010, which was a, uh, an abnormally competitive year, uh, you only had uh, uh, you only had about 20 percent of the House that was in play, and, and of course, uh, in any two-year cycle, you only have a third of the Senate in play, uh, in, up for election, and only about 10 only about 10 senators out of those 33 were in play. So you had you had 80 percent of the House and 90 percent of the Senate that was in no real threat of losing their job. Uh, the system works to protect incumbents, and it works to discourage strong candidates from running. Uh, so most members face very little competitive threat, uh, and over time, the, the problem with that is they begin to feel that they can act and vote as they choose. Uh, now, when I say that, I don't mean on the, the largest issues that everybody's paying attention to. Obviously, people are not going to get away with what, whatever the final vote is on the debt deal. They're not going to get away with voting against their district on that. But if you're talking about something like patent law, which most people aren't paying attention to, yeah, if you, don't, if you have a safe seat, you can vote how you want to, and it may not necessarily be in the interest of your district. Uh, also, you don't, uh, a, a lot of the misbehavior that we see, uh, ethical misbehavior, uh, is also driven by the fact that nobody feels a serious competitive threat. So uh, the next uh, sort of perverse incentive that I want to talk about is uh, the, the incentive, the, the campaign finance laws create a very strong incentive to spend a great deal of your time raising money, uh, <clears throat> raising campaign contributions. And that is almost, uh, it's almost mathematical the way it works. Uh, I had some statistics in the book uh, that were compiled by Open Secrets, I think, that said in 2008, the typical winning campaign for the House cost a little over a million dollars. Uh, the typical winning campaign for the Senate cost somewhere between six and seven million dollars. Obviously, those can vary depending on your individual districts, uh, but that's a lot of money. And campaign finance contribution limits are quite low. Typically, you're raising money in increments of $250, $500, $1,000, maybe $2,500 at a time. Well, if you do that math, that's a lot of contributions you got to get. 
uh, and that takes time. And members of Congress have 24 hours in the day, just like all the rest of us. And raising that much money takes up a pretty big percentage of that time. Um, that also works to increase the influence of organized interests. Since they're here most of the time, they have to raise that money from organized interests here. And I like to use the term organized interest rather than special interests because there's nothing special about the special interest. They're just like all the rest of us. They just, be ha they just happen to go about seeking their political goals in a more organized way than all the rest of us. So I like the term organized interest. So anyway, campaign finance law and the, the amount of time you have to spend here in Washington and the amount of money you have to raise all work to uh, increase the influence of organized interests and they work to protect incumbents uh, because uh, it's much harder for challengers to raise money under that system. But most importantly, they take up members' time. Uh, it takes members' time to raise all that money. Uh, and that is time that they cannot spend thinking of good solutions to problems that we face as a country. Um, <clears throat> the, next, uh, the next sort of perverse incentive is uh, to scatter their attention over a, an endless number of topics. We need to something to bring their focus back together. But we have an enormous federal government. If you all live in Washington, which I assume most of you do, you see it every day. Uh, we have a vast government. It is doing lots of things, lots of agencies, lots of programs. It's not doing any of them very well uh, for the most part. Members of Congress have a very large staff uh, to support them. So they can spend a lot of time uh, seeking headlines by pointing out uh, this agency's doing this, this agency's doing that. And they get rewarded by headlines. They get press. Uh, but there's no real uh, uh, penalty for them skipping on to the next thing very quickly. Uh, so the, the problem is they tend to seek the latest headline and uh, not necessarily focus on the, the most important problems. Hand in glove with that. Uh, members of Congress, as I said earlier, get focused on their reelection. Uh, when they go out to campaign for reelection, uh, they're going to be asked, what have you done for me lately? And they do not want to be standing there like a deer in the headlights when that happens. So they want to say, I did something. I accomplished something. And I like to use accomplishments in quotation marks. Because I think most members of Congress think of an accomplishment as a new law or tinkering with a, 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 an existing law. They do not think of an accomplishment as getting rid of something that we don't need. Uh, <clears throat> for uh, it, it, So as they try to find new accomplishments to go out and campaign for re-election on, that drives them to look for more and more problems to solve. Uh, and I, I like to refer to them as micro-problems. A good example of this I saw on the news earlier this week was Senator Schumer uh, was on the news talking uh, uh, about airline bag fees, which we all hate. Uh, and he was saying that when they lose your bag or if it doesn't get there on time, you ought to get your bag fee back. Well, who doesn't agree with that, okay? But is that, uh, I mean, I certainly do. Uh, but the, the problem with that is, is, is that really what we want Congress face, working on? Uh, uh, bag fees is probably something you and I can work out with airlines uh, independently and, and which market should work out independently. But we need Cong uh, Senator Schumer and others to be focusing on the debt, not on bag fees, okay? Uh, so the problem with this sort of need to get these accomplishments, no matter how micro they are, is that the government grows and grows and grows, and no program, how, however useless or obsolete, ever gets eliminated. They just stay forever. We still have 1930s farm subsidy policy, uh, it, it, totally out of date, and that's just one example. There, there are dozens. And the last <clears throat> sort of perverse incentive that I want to talk about, and this is probably, I think, the most important one, and you see it playing out right now in the debt deal very, uh, very strongly. 
uh, and this is more true in the House than in the Senate, but it's true in both, which is <clears throat> if you're in the minority party, your entire uh, your, your entire incentive is to concentrate on regaining the majority in the next election. Uh, you don't have anything to do. You don't get to bring up any of your bills. Uh, what amendments you can bring up are generally controlled by the, the majority. Uh, and so you've gone through all this effort to become a member of Congress, and you get here, and you want to get some of your ideas enacted into law, and you're in the minority, and you get here, and you can't do anything. Uh, so you're sitting there, and you're watching the other guys, and it looks like they're having a lot of fun, uh, and you suddenly realize, wow, there's no point in me spending any time thinking about policy. I should just go and work on trying to get the majority back. Um, and that is a huge problem. Uh, and the reason is you have no incentive uh, to, to try to develop a consensus solution to any problem. And I like to say consensus solution rather than compromise because I think they're two different things. Uh, it's a subtle difference. But a compromise people think as, you know, I have to give you some of my toys and, you, you know, and we work out and I have to take some things that I don't like. I think if we had the two parties working together to develop a consensus, eventually we would get to a point where both sides can see that this benefits them. And you see that happen sometimes on, on things that are not at the top level of public interest. Uh, 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 judiciary, which is the committee I follow most closely, has recently done this with patent legislation. That bill has been going on for about eight years. It has had a very long and full process with a lot of disagreement along the way. But it has evolved over eight years to something where there's pretty much a consensus that this is the right bill. That could happen on some of the more important things if everybody weren't so focused on either holding the majority or regaining it. Um, so that, I think, is one of the most perverse incentives. And, and, and you see it now in, in the debate over entitlements in the tax code. Democrats don't want to come out of their foxhole on the entitlements. Republicans don't want to come out of their foxhole on the tax code. Uh, because they're afraid it'll make them lose their majority or, or help them regain the majority. If somehow being in the majority were not so important, then maybe they could come out of their, their foxhole and maybe they could reach a consensus. But, I mean, you know, uh, if you look at Social Security, it's not terribly difficult to figure out what it is we need to do about Social Security. We all know, and we all kind of know what makes sense, but nobody wants to take the first step out there and do it. So uh, that is a hugely uh, Im important uh, perverse incentive. Um, so let me talk about some of the changes that I suggest in the book and how they might work. Uh, I think it's extremely important that we encourage members to stay more in touch with real people. Uh, we need to get them home more often, uh, and the House, uh, to its credit, has, has done some of that with the schedule this year, uh, and that's obviously something to be done right away. In the, in the sort of medium term, I think we need to have shorter sessions that focus on fewer and larger issues and less micro issues. And in the long term, I would like to see us move towards a system that is more like state legislatures where it is a part-time job uh, and they go home and do their real job. Uh, you, you have a session with a, uh, you know, a fairly firm adjournment date and then you go home and you do whatever it was you did before you came. I think that would have an enormous effect on uh, uh, keeping members in touch with what the effects of policy on real people. So that's one. And I, obviously that's a long-term, you know, we're not going to change Congress to a part-time job right away. That's something that would have to be done over a number of years. Um, I think a second very important thing <clears throat> is we need to promote more competitive elections. Uh, and that can be done in a couple of ways. Obviously, campaign finance law, we need to raise the limits. That, that's just uh, it, 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 that's the starting point for, for, to make it easier for challengers to raise money. Another sort of perverse effect of those limits is 
if you're a challenger, first of all, if you don't know how to raise money, you're not going to run at all. You're not going to get anywhere. Secondly, uh, if you had higher limits, challengers could go to a few large uh, funders uh, and fund a campaign, and it might, you know, there might only be a few people who are willing to take on an entrenched incumbent. But that would allow a challenger who had those few people to do it. Um, I think it would also. Uh, uh, be helpful to limit fundraising to or, or, or prohibit fundraising during the time that Congress is in session. Uh, that would uh, encourage shorter sessions. Uh, if you had a certain adjournment date, uh, y you could, if Congress did not finish its work by the adjournment date, you could let the challengers start to raise money, but not the incumbents. That would get them out of here quickly. Uh, and there, there are, I think, uh, 28 state legislatures now that have some form of this. Uh, there are varying degrees of how stringent it is, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not an unheard of idea. Um, next change that I've suggested is uh, what I call popping the bubble. Uh, members of Congress operate in a bubble. They're surrounded by staff, uh, and it, that is another thing that isolates them from real people. I, I love congressional staff. I was one for a long time. They do a great job. I'm not saying they do a bad job, but the number of them enable members of Congress to do too many things, and they do too many things, and they don't do enough of them well. There are also too many built-in resources that are on autopilot, uh, Congressional Research Service, the legislative drafters, so on and so forth. I think I have suggested that, that members of Congress uh, divide up the pie, however big the pie is going to be, however much we're going to spend on Congress, allocate it out to each member, and let them decide at the beginning of each year or each Congress what they want to spend it on. Now, that is the way sort of personal offices work, but it's not the way it works for everything else. Uh, and so if they want to spend it on mailings, fine. If you want to spend it on committee staff, fine. If you want to spend it on legislative drafters, fine. But you get X amount per Congress, and that's it. But, but we have too many resources that are on autopilot that stay there forever. And that'd be a way of getting at that. We need to encourage more informed choice. Uh, if you all uh, watched the health care debate or you watched Dodd-Frank, it was not an informed choice. Uh, you cannot make an informed choice when a bill is 2,500 pages long. No one understands what's in there. No one yet understands what's in it, even two years later. Uh, that, and, and that is a, just a complete undercutting of democracy. If you don't understand what you're voting on, it's not much of a democracy. So I've suggested let's reduce the number of bills, let's reduce the length of bills, let's write them in plain English, and let's encourage members uh, to read them. Uh, it, again, that, that's just fundamental. Uh, <clears throat> a couple of other things that uh, are larger things uh, that are a little more uh, from left field. Um, creating incentives to repeal laws. Um, chairman of committees do not have any incentive to repeal law now. It's all about accomplishments. What can I add? What new program can I add? What, what program can I tinker with? No one ever wants to say, let's get rid of something. So I have suggested that we com create committees on repeals that have jurisdiction over nothing but repealing laws. Uh, obviously, that is a difficult thing to uh, uh, enact, and I think you'd probably have to end up giving secondary jurisdiction to the committees uh, that, that have jurisdiction over the programs. Um, but we need to have some incentive, somebody whose job it is to look for things to repeal. And finally, again, back to the, the point about the minority. Uh, which I think is probably the most important one, uh, they need to have some, the, the minority needs to have some responsibility for governing. Right now they have none, and they can sit in the back row and just hurl bombs. I think we need to give them control over some part of the agenda. It doesn't need to be a huge control, uh, but it needs to be some. And, and currently we have an arrangement in the House in which, uh, and it, it's been the arrangement for a long time under both 
under both Democrats and Republicans for the non-controversial bills, the majority brings up 70 percent, the minority brings up 30 percent. 30 percent is probably too much for controversial bills, but maybe 10 percent. Uh, and that would have a, a very dramatic change. It cuts off your ability to be a bomb thrower. It requires you to select your ideas and put your best ideas out there. Uh, it, it allows the majority, particularly in a situation like we have now with the debt crisis, to say put up or shut up. And it also creates a sort of a market uh, for people to trade votes, which is a good thing. Uh, that's how we get things done. Um, so I think that uh, that could be a very uh, dramatic uh, change in how, how both the House and Senate work if we did that. Um, so those are, those are my changes that I want to talk about. I do want to just point out here at the end uh, that Congress did make some baby steps in this direction this year. Uh, in, in the House, in terms of focusing more, they did, they've done cut and grow, they've done earmark reform, they've protected the committee time, they've eliminated a lot of the commemoratives, they've limited the naming of buildings and so forth. Uh, in terms of informed choice, they are at least uh, putting the bills out there for three days before, uh, before they're voted on. They have opened up the amendment process for the minority. They do have this new schedule that uh, takes people home more. They have encouraged oversight. I haven't seen any repeal bills yet, but they are encouraging oversight. The Senate has ended secret holes. They've reduced the number of Senate-confirmed positions. They've got a gentleman's agreement to stop filling the tree, which cuts off minority amendments. So, uh, so anyway, uh, bottom line is there, there has been some good uh, reform in the right direction, but it's not nearly far enough yet. So I'll stop there, and I will, uh, I'll take questions at the appropriate moment. Thanks very much, Joseph. A nice presentation. Uh, and you thought that the, uh, the business about we passed the bill to find out what was in it was just sort of exaggeration. Well, it turns out not. It's built into the system. Now, some of you may think that uh, Brookings Institution, the Cato Institute, are at you know the opposite ends of uh, Massachusetts Avenue, the opposite ends of the political spectrum, and therefore the people that work there don't get along together very well, don't get along with each other, but nothing could be farther from the truth. Our, our commentator today is one of my favorite people in Washington. Uh, Bill Frenzel has been a guest scholar at the Brookings Institution since he retired from the U.S. House of Representatives after serving his Minnesota constitu constituency for 20 years. He was the ranking minority member on the House Budget Committee. And by the way, back in the green room, he told me that uh, the only acceptable budget uh, proposal out there is by uh, Senator Colburn's staff, so we might want to hear some more about that today. Um, he was also the principal re Republican economic spokesman in the House. He was also a member of the House Ways and Means and its Trade Subcommittee and Congressional re uh, Representative to the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, the GATS in Geneva, uh, an institution uh, very important in opening up international trade. In 1993, he was special advisor to the president for NAFTA. In 2001, President Bush appointed him to the Social Security Commission, and in 2002, to the Advisory Commission on Trade Policy and Negotiations. In January 2005, he was appointed to President Bush's Tax Reform Committee. These, these issues continue over 10, 20 decades and decades, tax reform, Social Security entitlements. And Bill has been a part of them, been involved in them uh, all along the way. Bill received his BA and MBA from Dartmouth College and served as a naval officer during the Korean War. He is, he is an alternate, 
alternate board member of the Office of Congressional Ethics of the House of Representatives and a board member of the Office of Congressional Ethics and many other organizations. Please welcome Bill Frenzel. Thank you very much, John, and thank you, Joe, for that presentation and for writing the book. <clears throat> I, uh, I am a recovering congressman, but like Joe, I've gone straight. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but keep an abiding interest uh, in the institution, and uh, like Joe, I'm very interested in, in looking for ways to make it operate better. Uh, I am not uh, probably well-placed to be a critic for another man's book because I don't write books. <clears throat> I think that's maybe the difference between Yale and Dartmouth. I'm not, uh, not quite sure, but uh, <clears throat> at any rate, I, I do have some thoughts. And uh, the first part of the book is, is what's wrong with Congress? Well, what are these uh, various perverse incentives? And, and Joe laid most of them out uh, for you, I think, uh, uh, fairly carefully. Uh, they are simply wrong, and uh, they encourage members to do the wrong things and occasionally to make the wrong decisions. Uh, it's very hard to reorient uh, those incentives. Uh, in, in the Congress, uh, one must have a, a burning ambition uh, to want to serve. As, as Joe points out in the book, and he didn't in his uh, preamble, uh, it's, a, it's a fairly hairy experience to run. You've got to work your head off, and uh, you need to probably quit your job, and you have to uh, get down and uh, visit uh, every plant gate and every bowling alley and every PTA and, and Elk's Breakfast and Mason's Lunch and uh, Catholic Night's Dinner uh, that you can imagine. And, uh, and once having done that, uh, if, unless your level of ambition cools, <clears throat> you really want to maintain yourself. As Joe has pointed out, uh, the prime motivation of Congress is self-preservation, that is, re-election. Uh, it rates uh, uh, higher than everything else, even sex, although it's sometimes confused <laughs> for sex. <coughs> uh, the second uh, highest uh, uh, motivation is uh, to preserve your committee's jurisdiction and to preserve your committee's uh, rights uh, in all respects. And these are very, very hard things to change. And uh, I'm not sure we're ever going to, uh, to do it just right. Uh, for instance, the, uh, with respect to the ordeal of running for Congress, I, I sort of like that idea. I think you want, have to want to do it very badly. Uh, if you come uh, just for fun, uh, I think you, you probably come with the wrong kind of attitude. Uh, John also talks about campaign finance. Again, I would agree that members nowadays spend much too much time worrying about raising money and trying to raise it, and uh, often not raising enough, or having to raise money for their fellows to preserve a good committee assignment, uh, whatever. Uh, 
that's, that's really messy. And I, again, I don't quite know how to, uh, to change that very much. I do know that whenever you tinker with the election laws, uh, you run into nine old people in black robes who, uh, who make it uh, very difficult. And uh, I guess I would support John's suggestion to remove limitations. Uh, but I'd be very careful in, in playing with campaign election laws other than to get rid of public financing, which doesn't apply to the Congress, uh, because uh, of the sensitivity. Uh, I, I am uh, less worried about, uh, what did you call them, organized interests. I call them reference groups, because I don't like special interests uh, either. Uh, but uh, that doesn't bother me. Uh, the idea of, of a congressman wanting to do something also doesn't bother me too much. But, of course, he picked the extreme example when he used uh, poor old Senator Schumer uh, to talk about it. It was Bob Dole that first said that anyone that stands between uh, Chuck Schumer and an open mic is in dangerous territory. Uh, uh, congressmen do look for ways to endear themselves to their constituents, and uh, it, it would be nice uh, if they did a little less, but I've never heard of anyone campaigning on nothing except maybe Ron Paul, and uh, it is said often that he has achieved that, too, so one, one needs to be a little bit uh, uh, careful. One of the questions I asked uh, Joe in the uh, uh, before this meeting began was, why didn't you talk about term limits? Uh, that solves a lot of these problems in my judgment. Of course, he explained that uh, when he took to the podium and said, I haven't used constitutional amendments because uh, those take an awful long time, and I wanted to talk about things that were within the realm of probability. I think as difficult as term limits are to achieve, and and we have all written a great record of failure uh, in that regard. Uh, they are so powerful, and they answer so many of the questions uh, that Joe has put up. They're the, they're the ultimate needle into the bubble that surrounds the congressman. In the, in the House, we used to call it senatoritis, and sometimes chairmanitis. Uh, people get to thinking they're very important. Uh, they, uh, uh, they are protected from their constituents and the public by uh, all of the staff and so forth. Uh, but they aren't protected uh, if they can only serve a specified number of terms. And of course, to that, to the term limit uh, question, I would say also uh, the House Republicans have done a pretty good job in term limiting chairmen. Uh, they, uh, they have a three-year uh, rotation. I, I would carry that a step farther and say that membership on committees also ought to be rotated. And I would take the chairman's thing and lessen the three-year, the three-term rotation and uh, apply a three-term rotation to committee membership. I hate it when members get too good, especially at spending, and uh, when they acquire all that experience and skill, uh, they're dangerous, and so I'd like to move them somewhere else as, as uh, soon as they uh, do that. 
I think the, the, the most interesting suggestion of all that Joe makes is, uh, is to arm the minority with a certain amount of power so that it doesn't spend its whole life uh, rolling uh, bombs onto the House floor in order to dislodge the majority. Obviously, you want to be competitive. You don't want to kill that instinct. You do want to be the majority, whoever you are. <clears throat> Nevertheless, uh, you can waste an awful lot of time doing silly things uh, if you don't have a chance to participate in the process. I served uh, 20 years in the minority. Uh, it is said that in our system of government, the minority plays a noble role. I did not find it ennobling. Uh, it was frustrating uh, as it could be. Uh, Joe has showed us a way uh, by opening up uh, some agenda items and more amendments uh, to the minority uh, that I would support. I'm very nervous about how a minority would react if they used those privileges only to uh, embarrass the majority rather than to pick on great issues of importance to the minority. I, and, and those two points can overlap, of course. Uh, they would probably kill it for all time. But I think it would be a wonderful experience. I am, uh, I, I've been uh, very pleased that the uh, new speaker, Boehner, has opened up uh, committee work, uh, taken a little bit away from the leadership, let the committees uh, go back to their chores, which is useful, uh, and opened up the amendment process, uh, as Joe pointed out. With respect to some of the other changes, I, I am less enthusiastic. I, I think his uh, suggestion of going home more regularly is wonderful. Uh, every one of us needs that. In fact, that's part of our incentive that offsets uh, the bubble, is that you feel the need to go home, take the temperature of your, of your constituents with, with great regularity. Uh, I do not, however, think uh, Congress should be a part-time job. <coughs> I certainly would never want to hire a member of Congress to work for me, unless, <laughs> unless I needed to buy him for something else. Uh, uh, Congress, in my judgment, is a full-time job. It's serious work. Uh, a lot of the work is saying no. Uh, nevertheless, uh, that work uh, takes a lot of research and hard uh, effort, as well as, uh, as passing laws uh, which we wish uh, were never passed. Uh, the other suggestion of Joe's that, uh, that lights my fire is uh, no fundraising while the Congress is in session. Uh, I, I think uh, this has uh, its chances to be passed in the House or the Senate, I would rate as slim to none. But uh, nevertheless, it, it really would uh, free up the members uh, to uh, spend a lot more time at the work they should be doing. I, I have another addition to that, a slight amendment, uh, that I used to offer uh, many, many years ago, and that was that nobody could hold a fundraiser in, in the, within uh, 100 miles of the city of Washington. I think the lobbyists would cheer for that one, too. They sort of get tired of getting fleeced and having money extorted from them uh, by the members. Uh, but, but clearly, uh, fundraising is, is a chore. 
and there ought to be a way to uh, <coughs> to uh, limit at least the times and places that uh, you're putting your energies uh, into it. One other one that I didn't uh, that didn't strike me as as being the right kind of answer was was uh, his novel uh, idea about the committee on repeals, and maybe you guys will have some thoughts on that. It strikes me that uh, Congress has never been any good at oversight, and, and I have watched it operate now very closely for 40 years. Uh, members simply are not very good at critically looking at their own work. They always look at it and say, yeah, this could be better if we'd give it more money. And, and so I would prefer to have oversight done by outside agencies. I don't care if they're accounting firms or the GAO or somebody else, but I, I just don't think we would do well. I also think we have an example in the creation of the Budget Committee where the, the people who were supposed to be subdued by the Budget Committee were the Ways and Means Committee and the Appropriations Committee. The Appropriators and the Ways and Means Committee members were able to get enough members on the Budget Committee to pull its teeth. And so uh, it, it never was effective in restraining them from the things it wanted to do. I fear the a Committee on Repeal would not be strong enough to overcome uh, the expertise and the cohesion of the members of the committees of, of uh, original jurisdiction. Uh, those are some of my thoughts. It's a fun book to read. I recommend it to you, and uh, I thank you, Joe, for having uh, brought it to our attention. Thank you. So now comes the part of audience participation. Uh, we're going to have questions and answers. I will uh, call on people, and please, when I call on you, uh, wait until the microphone arrives so everyone can hear. And I would ask two other things. If you give us your name, three other things. Give us your name, any affiliation you might want to reveal, and uh, please let uh, have your comments in the form of a question. And if you want to address it to one or the other, indicate that also. Gentlemen here. My name is Stephen Shore. One possible reform that neither of you have mentioned is nonpartisan apportionment. Uh, uh, President Reagan favored this idea. It went nowhere. But I, it, it, you could say that districts get the congressmen or women they deserve. And if you had nonpartisan nationwide apportionment, uh, do, would you favor that idea? And do you think that would move things forward? Well, I think a couple of few states do have that, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and I, I have, I, ha <laughs> I went through the uh, when the uh, Supreme Court ruled on the delay redistricting, uh, and I was working for Lamar Smith, and I went through the remand of that. And redistricting is the ultimate zero sum game. Uh, so I think it would be uh, nice if we could somehow do that uh, without political consideration in mind. But I think it's. Uh, like a lot of things I talk about, it's hard to get from here to there. I have, I have exactly the same feeling. Uh, I, I think the, the best example is Iowa, which has a, an interesting commission system. Arizona has something. <clears throat> Florida and California will experiment this year uh, in this redistricting season with uh, commissions. Uh, I, I don't believe they're the ultimate answer. 
but they are a part of, and I think would fit in nicely with the stuff that, that Joe has recommended. It is true that uh, if the, the tendency by both parties is to sweeten up your districts and sweeten up the other guys' districts. So the districts become more Republican and more Democrat. And that means that they're controlled by the zealots in both parties. So from a strong Democrat district, you'll get quite a left person. From a strong Republican district, you'll get a very right person. And, uh, and that tends to make either consensus or compromise uh, unworkable. And in our Madisonian system of government, if you don't have consensus or compromise, uh, you have stalemate and death. One other thought on that, uh, which is something I talked about in the book. I didn't talk about it in my presentation today, but one other idea I threw out in the book is uh, not necessarily to go to redistricting, but to, to reduce the number of members of the House. Uh, we all think of it as 435 because that's what it's been all our lifetime, but that is set by statute, and Congress can change that if it chooses to. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe, you know, 300 members instead of 435 would be a more manageable number, and you that would create districts that are much larger uh, and not so uh, – the, the larger the district gets, the more it's going to move to the middle uh, in, in general. Uh, there'd be exceptions to that, but in general, that's going to drive people to the middle. Whether that can actually happen in practice is, is, is another matter. I think that would take a long time, uh, but it's, it's, it's another approach to – to what you're trying to get at. If I could I would just rather wrestle lions and tigers <laughs> than try to put that through the Congress. Well, let me just interject. A lot of people note that, uh, you know, the number of constituents that a member uh, now compared to 1789 represents has, has really gone up and up. And that the, the really implies a much larger number of House members. Some people think that would. Well, I talk about that in the book, and, and uh, when uh, the the number was set at 435, I think in 1910, 1911, something like that, and the, the population at that time was about a third of what it is now. Uh, so if you think about increasing the amount, uh, if, if that's the right size, you're talking about increasing the House to something like 1,300, which is basically like a party political convention, and I think that's, you know, as a practical matter, completely unworkable. And I think... If you're talking about 1910, when people were still driving horses and buggies, uh, having a, a much larger constituency is, is not going to work. But now we're talking about the Internet age where uh, most average people rarely see their congressman, but they might get a phone call from, uh, you know, from a telephone town hall or an email from their congressman. So I think having a larger constituency is more workable with today's technology than it would have been at that time. But, again, trying to get from here to there is, is a big problem. Um. Gentleman in the front row. I'm Jim Harper, Director of Information Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. Because, well, that's your name. Because yeah, Usually I don't identify myself because I'm big on anonymity. Um, you mentioned the Internet and technology. I'm, I'm curious about the role that it has had in your experience. You were around in 1995 when the Thomas system came into effect, which is the Library of Congress provision of information about bills and votes and things like that. Did you perceive an effect on how members of Congress behave at that time when they recognize that more information would be more available? And what do you think uh, the future holds when much better data is available much more quickly to a broader audience for both members of Congress and perhaps for the organized interests that you refer to? Um, interesting question. Jim, Jim did not reveal that he and I used to work together on the House Judiciary Committee, so I'll just throw that out there so everybody knows. <laughs> so we're old friends. Um, 
You know, that's an interesting question. I was there in 1995, and in those days, uh, if you wanted a copy of a bill, you actually had to go over to another building, and they had them in these little pigeonholes, and you had to go get one, and now you just pull it up on your computer. But your question, I think, is did it change the way members? Um, I, I think it allows you to generate a lot more text and bills and things like that that are more easily accessible, and that is probably a good thing. But I, I feel like the more ferment, the more process you have, probably the better product you get in the end. But also, it's it's. Uh, I was referring to telephone town halls. That that is a tremendous technology, uh, which allows members. Uh, you basically can get on this telephone call, and it goes out, and you know you can target whatever group you want to target, uh, and you can talk to thousands of people. And you get this call at your house, and it's like you know, Congressman so and so is going to be on, um, and and that that is just an amazing technology. And I think it that brings members closer. But I. I also think with email and things like that, it, it's almost overwhelming for staff now to keep up. It, it was overwhelming before when you just had regular mail, but now with email, it is just almost impossible. I mean, it's, it's always good to get input, but it's just just the logistics of it now are, are overwhelming. So, you know, there's good and bad, I think, in, in the technology. Gentleman here down front was up. Then we'll Robert Huey from RH Kinetics. Um, I was just at the FOES conference down the street, or the exhibition, and very much of it is involved in such things as teleconferencing. And since so much of Congress, or at least much of their time, is spent in committees, would it be possible for much of that to become uh, distributed, teleconference, so the people can be back in their home uh, district while dealing with uh, committee work? That's a very interesting idea. I had, I had not thought about that. Uh, I, I think the rules as they currently exist would prohibit that. I think you've got to physically be in the room, um, and you've got to physically be in the room to vote on the House floor and so forth. Um, but it's an interesting idea. Uh, I, yeah, particularly committees, uh, and that would allow people to be at home more often. Uh, I, whether you could get members – I mean, it would – the downside to it would be, you know, there's a lot of negotiating that goes on behind the scene while a committee is meeting uh, frequently. Yeah, and I guess you could do that. I guess you could be talking on the telephone offline. Uh, it's an interesting idea. I, I don't know how it would work in practice, but it's an interesting idea. I, I think it's fun. Uh, my guess is that the point Joe makes about interchange between people negotiating under the table uh, while a meeting is going on is, is pretty hard to reproduce in a teleconference. But there are a lot of meetings that uh, are fairly perfunctory, certainly hearings of all kinds, where uh, members would not be inhibited from asking questions. They could do that readily. I think that does have some promise. And you, you do see that change now. When you go to a hearing, it, uh, particularly a hearing in which there's a great deal of public interest, you used to the room used to be full of people, and now it's not because people sit in their office and watch it on the internet. Um, and, and that is a for for lobbyists, that's a significant change in, in how life works. But whether members would go with that, I don't know. Uh, the lady on the aisle there. Thank you. My name is Colleen Shogan. I'm uh, the Assistant Director of the Congressional Research Service, and I run the Government and Finance Division. So I supervise uh, 80 political scientists and economists at CRS. And I uh, certainly was following you for most of your talk. I, I want to push you a little bit on the notion uh, that CRS and any of our sister agencies in the legislative branch certainly are on autopilot. Um, I've been in my position for about two and a half years, and I don't think I've been on autopilot once, certainly have not stopped. 
uh, myself and my uh, colleagues answering you know thousands and thousands of requests from members of Congress. We are the only research service in Washington, D.C. that is nonpartisan and confidential. And what I really want to ask you is that one of your uh, thesis, you know, one of your ideas is moving towards consensus, which I think is, is a very good idea and something that needs to happen. And I just don't, you know, nonpartisan analysis and research is one way to move towards uh, consensus. So I'm trying to figure out how you can square some of your comments with uh, the nonpartisan legislative agencies along with your desired outcome of consensus. Well, let me be clear about what I was saying. Uh, I'm not criticizing CRS. I think they do a great job, uh, just like the staff. My only point is when I say on autopilot, a as things exist today, it's always going to be there. Because, and my only point is we ought to stop and think every at the beginning of every Congress, is this working? Do we want to do it? And how much, how many resources do we want to devote to it? And I think that's a decision that members individually could make by having a slice of the pie and deciding how much they want to give to CRS. I'm not saying we should get rid of CRS, and I'm not saying CRS doesn't do a good job. I'm just saying that's something. If the resource is there and it's it, it's going to be there, members are going to use it. As you know, you, you respond to bazillion requests every day. If they actually had to think about how much does this cost, they might not send you so many. Uh, I think that's, that's a real problem for members. Uh, when I got into the management ranks of staff, Members tend to think that resources are, are infinite, and they are not, uh, and, and they just can't understand it when you have to go in and explain, no, our resources is finite. We can either do this or we can do that, but we can't do both. Uh, and so that's, that's the point I'm trying to get at. It's, it's not to say that ZRS doesn't do a great job because they do. I, uh, I have sort of similar mixed feelings on this. Uh, I use the CRS particularly for election law where we, had, we couldn't afford on our committee uh, experienced election lawyers, constitutional lawyers, et cetera. And the results were wonderful. And it is one of the few nonpartisan sources around. On the other hand, I and other members of Congress discovered, to our dismay, that uh, interns were having term papers written. Uh, you know, we, uh, CRS is a valuable agency, but somebody's got to put it under the microscope. Gentlemen on the aisle. Thank you. My name is Akira Chiba. I'm the minister in charge of congressional affairs at the Embassy of Japan. And since the Japanese system is so different from the American system, I'm having a lot of trouble trying to figure out what Congress is all about. And I end up asking a lot of <laughs> I end up asking a lot of stu stupid questions. So this could be one of them. Um, it's about registers, registered voters, and I'm told that uh, more and more voters register themselves as independent. And that gives me the impression that these are people who don't want to decide whether they're Republican or Democrat. They want to be somewhere in the middle. They don't want to go to the extreme. And they just want to elect to, to vote the best guy out there. But the thing is, they don't get to vote uh, for the best guy out there. They only get to vote between the, one of the two, which have uh, come through their primaries and have gone to their extremes already. Which means that the more the, the independents go to the poll, the more, the more they get something opposite of what they ask for. Um, so the question is, is, is this a case? And if so, how can this be fixed? Uh, well, that's, that, uh, that's a great question. And it goes to what I was talking about earlier about the competitiveness of elections. If you are an independent and you want to run, it, it is, a, unless you are famous for some other reason, uh, it is an almost impossible task to win a congressional election as an independent. It has been done. 
uh, but it is exceedingly rare. Um, and so, uh, the, I don't know how you would you would take apart the the the, the system is so built around the two party system, and the existing parties control all the machinery. Uh, I don't know how you would dismantle that. I don't know. Maybe you you have an idea on that, but uh, but it, it it's extremely difficult to run as an independent. Yeah, yeah, there's no question about it. Unless you're Oprah Winfrey or something, you you don't have a chance. Uh, or maybe a all-star quarterback. Uh, or, or I mean, we've had a couple of cases in recent years where established senators lost their primaries and then came back and ran as independents and won. But they were already established. They already had the machinery and so on and so forth. But, but uh, with respect to registering as independents, there's a number of states that do not register by party. And you participate in a party primary simply by indicating your your desire to vote for that primary's candidates in the general, and then you get their uh, primary ballot. Uh, so there are a lot of places where we don't know who's independent and who isn't. And we, politicians have to find out by polls as, as best they can. Uh, often uh, in my district, we used to say an independent was a guy that, that was too cheap to contribute to the Republican Party, but he usually voted for us. Uh, they're, they're all gradations of independence. Uh, the only way to move it would be a third party. You see little upsurges. You saw Perot. You saw the Tea Party, et, et cetera. But third parties have never done well in the United States, except in the 1850s when the Republican Party was the last one to emerge and, and supplant the Whigs. So it, it takes a long time to build a third party. I just can't help but remark with the gentleman from the embassy here. We've all gotten over the World Cup, uh, except for Harper. Harper's still upset. <laughs> yes, congratulations. Congratulations, yes. Uh, uh, gentleman, Mark Calabria. Uh, thank you. You sounded very interesting. Uh, Mark Calabria here at the Cato Institute, as well as a recovering Senate staffer. So, uh, and I'll say as an aside, if you want to actually touch on it, several of the suggestions strike me as making the House more like the Senate, for instance, giving the minority uh, a bigger role. But my question is really, it seems like on one hand, there's a tension between some of the suggestions. Some of the suggestions are to make Congress more responsive. Other suggestions are to essentially make Congress less responsive. For instance, term limits would, of course, make you less responsive uh, because you're not having to run again. So, and I guess I'd also would say, again, if you're an entrenched incumbent, then why would you care so much about fundraising? You're entrenched. So, to me, there seems to be a tension between some of the comments, and maybe it's because this is a my reflections rather than a theoretical framework. So, what I would suggest, it would be very helpful to try to flesh that out in terms of you know, how much of these suggestions offset each other? You know, what exactly you're trying to do? Is Congress indeed too entrenched or are they too responsive to the public in, in flushing some of that out? Well, as I said at the beginning, <laughs> there is not an overarching theoretical uh, uh, framework here. It's, it's, you know, these are piece by piece practical suggestions and, and there are, you're, you're absolutely correct, there are tensions between them, so. Well, I, if, if I may comment, I, I, I think the, the idea of promoting some of that minority stuff <clears throat> probably comes from those of us in the House who uh, look with an envious eye at the Senate, where the majority does have a little horsepower. And therefore, they have a little more comedy. They have a little better uh, opportunity to 
reach consensus or compromise, whichever you like. Uh, in the House, it's uh, the minority is is pretty well suppressed, <coughs> and and I I think I still like the idea of giving it uh, a little more horsepower, a little more incentive to do a legislative job rather than simply a hatchet job on the majority. And, and the ultimate point on that is. We, can, we can't get everybody out of their foxhole until being in the majority or being in the minority is less important. That's the, that's the real point. Follow-up question from Mark. I could clarify um, something. I mean, for, for starters, I mean, I think that's an important point that if you have more input, you're going to get more consensus. Now, it's important to start with the observation, vast majority of what goes to the Senate goes by unanimous consent. So you essentially need 100 senators. Uh, and I do think there is a degree of mutually assured destruction. You get along easier in the Senate because any one group of people could shut things down. So it would seem to me the easy solution to both houses would be much higher vote thresholds. If you had a 300-vote threshold in the House, it would change a lot. If you had an 80-vote threshold in the Senate, it would change a lot. And that seems to be a very straightforward role that either House could adopt on its own. I, I don't know what we would get done <laughs> with those kinds of thresholds. It's pretty hard with 60, but, uh, but yeah, yeah that, that's another way we could go. I don't think I want to participate yeah. in that experiment. <laughs> I don't want to be the leader, that's for sure. <laughs> Other questions? To I believe this gentleman on my right uh, has been waiting the longest. Uh, my name is Samar Chatterjee from Safe Foundation. Sir, you focused on only Congress and that too. Uh, and my, my feeling is uh, that no, no good or... Uh, do-nothing Congress allegation, which comes from the executive branch or others, is kind of, because we have a dysfunctional Congress as well as a dysfunctional executive branch. And both together have created now a dysfunctional Supreme Court, which is almost a right-wing uh, uh, Supreme Court. And it's, it's generating a lot of um, uh, laws that, that could be very, very much de detrimental to the country. So you have to really look at the whole overall system uh, as such. Uh, so whether or not these little bits and pieces that you've thrown out, whether it would do, do a great deal to serve the country, I really don't think. Uh, I think you need to look at the overall system, isn't it? Well, uh, that, that gets into constitutional amendments, which <laughs> is, I think, beyond the scope of this book. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, none, none of our government works very well. I certainly agree with you on that. Except I'd suggest that the Supreme Court uh, knows how to reach consensus. They, one of them gets Justice Kennedy and wins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty simple. Speaking of term limits, yeah. <laughs> gentleman here had a question. Don Grove. Uh, Joe, you uh, remarked on repeal, which I found to be very encouraging. And I, I have the sense that we've just got so much law now that the average person feels inundated and goes around with this vague sense that they're in violation, but can't even sort out why. Uh, I'm, I know you were reluctant to get into constitutional amendments because we're focusing on things that can happen in the near term, but wouldn't a balanced budget amendment go a long way to forcing, a, in effect, repeal of some of the excess law that we're all burdened with? Uh, well, it's, I, I think it certainly would get rid of some of the excess spending, which is a lot of what you're talking about, I think. Um, but the trick is how do you get it 
how do you get it enacted? Um, but but I think you make another point uh, about people feeling inundated by the law. I believe that that for people to it's very important for our for a democratic society to have people respect the law. It's very hard to get people to respect the law if they can't understand it. I can tell you uh, from my experiences with campaign finance law. Uh, campaign finance law is often completely con- contrary to what common sense would tell you. And there are things that would violate antitrust law, I mean campaign finance law, that it just never would occur to you if you didn't otherwise know. Uh, and, and if you could be omniscient in the sky over Capitol Hill and know what's going on up there, I can tell you there are hundreds of violations of campaign finance law that are going on every day, and frequently the people that are doing it have no idea that they're violating the law. That's a crazy law. If that's the situation, if normal people with good intentions don't, you know, can't figure out what the law is and can't follow it, that's nuts, uh, and we need to fix that. Uh, and, and uh, you know, so you're right. People could are inundated. You, could you say the same about some? I have had recent experience trying to look at the Senate Ethics Manual, and uh, you know, I can understand why there's ethics rules and everything, but I also it seems to me that just sort of. It overreaches the behavior. It's just incredibly complex. It makes information gathering, attendance at conferences much harder. Uh, the, Innocent behavior. The Senator Coburn example is a great one. I mean, I understand why that rule is in place, but the, the notion that a, a bunch of people are going to come running to their OBGYN to try to bribe them, uh, you know, is, is nuts. Uh, and, I mean, how many people in here do, can do their own taxes? You know, I mean, that's the classic example. Uh, how, how crazy is it? That you know, none of us can do our own taxes. That that is just just undermines democracy when you have a law that is so complex that people with good intentions can't follow it. And the other thing is, Bill pulled off, and some uh, some other members, and President Reagan pulled off a, a tax reform in '86. And yet we see, if you look at the charts and the trends, we're back again with a lot of tax preferences. It took about. Uh Ten years to undo everything that was done and to uh, put more uh, tax preferences back into the law than we had mm-hmm. when we began uh, pulling them out. It, uh, the law compounds at an extraordinary rate, and part of the one of the points that Joe makes in the book is that people have, either don't read bills that are being presented to them or can't understand them if they read them. Well, if, if, if you read a congressional bill, you wouldn't understand it either. Uh, it, there are, every page is larded with references to previous law, of which we have 230 years worth of it. Uh, we have judicial decisions and other precedents that, that make it hideously complicated. Uh, you know, if, if you were to try to unstring the whole thing, you, you would have to hire a million lawyers and have them start a rewrite, and it'd probably take them 10 years uh, to do it. It is, it is really complicated stuff. And, and yet, if, if it is extremely difficult to try to repeal a law because of all those references and cross-references, you will often find yourself getting into what we call unintended consequences by amending a law that you had no intention of going into at all. So it, it's really complicated work, and uh, it's, uh, it's work for specialists. Other questions? 
Let me pose a couple that are from the Senate side, so it may, but it's uh, two rules or changes that have been talked about quite a bit. Uh, one is um, when people talk about even a year ago or so, the problems with legislature, particularly before the 2010 election, they would all, often focus on the Senate rule that's called the filibuster rule, the closure rule. What do you, what do you think about that? Is, uh, is that something that would make Congress work better? And second, uh, if you go to Tea Party meetings or uh, discussions and so on, you'd often find that they uh, believe that the 17th Amendment was a uh, now this does get you into the constitutional area, but that that was a turning point that uh, really changed the fundamental nature of the country, but also uh, pushed Congress away from its original design, its federal design, and moved toward a more national Congress. What, what do you think about those two pro uh, possibilities? Well, I knew what the Seventeenth Amendment was. I do better. It's the one that wrecked the Senate, Bill. Uh, well, I do. T I talk about the filibuster rule in the book. I didn't talk about it here today too much, but um, uh, I, I think the filibuster rule is, is a good rule uh, as a matter of minority rights. And, and there have been instances over the last ten or twenty years since I've been involved in Congress where it was crucial uh, to uh, to pres you know keeping things from being worse than they already are. Uh, I mean, you, you saw it in healthcare uh, debate when uh, Scott Brown was elected, and that uh, it didn't ultimately keep healthcare from uh, passing, but it did mitigate the damage somewhat. Um, so I do, I, I think the, the filibuster rule is an okay rule. I, I think it has been abused, uh, particularly in overuse. For a long time, it was used judiciously and only for the largest things, and if it is reserved to that, I think it is fine. Uh, I think it's great. Uh, one of the things I suggested in the book was getting rid of the secret hold, uh, which they did. Uh, I would also like to see them uh, uh, sort of get rid of the hold and, and say, if, if you want to have a filibuster, you really have to come over and filibuster. It's not good enough to just say, you know, I, I'm putting a hold on this and that's it. Uh, I'd like to see it, and that's just a practice. That's not even a rule of the Senate, uh, to, to be the case where if they're going to filibuster, they got to go filibuster. They got to go stand up on the floor and do it. I think that would go a long way to uh, making its use more judicious. Uh, which I think is is the basic problem there. They now they use it for every every little thing, and that's that's not healthy. I don't think. Uh, as far as direct election of senators, um, I'm not sure that I agree with the uh, the Tea Party on that. I, I, you know, I wasn't alive in 1917 or whenever that was passed, so I don't have any experience with how it was before. Uh, but I don't think that's uh, the the core of our problem. I. Uh I'm with Joe on the holds and on the filibuster. I think uh, James Madison would smile on the filibuster because I think it, it helps the concept that he tried to put into our, into our government of, uh, of additional checks and balances. And uh, we were discussing earlier that that's one of the things that gives the minority a little status over in the Senate and, and uh, makes life uh, easier to work over there. I feel, I think, more strongly than Joe does uh, in favor of the 17th Amendment. Uh, I've served in state legislatures, and uh, I'm not sure you want a lot of big decisions being made in there, guys. <laughs> uh, yes, question from the lady on the aisle. With the advent of all this social media and stuff, um, 
how do you see that changing how the congressmen relate to each other, not just their constituencies, um, such that they're willing to work to, together with each other and engage in a conversation um, where they're actually listening to each other? Well, I have to interject here. Wasn't there a study about a month ago that showed that fully 20 to 30 percent of a congressman's time is spent taunting the other side? <laughs> so that just might make that work better. Yeah. Uh, well, I, yeah, there's, tweets haven't been going very well for Congress. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and uh, you just saw this week the, I think it was, I'm not sure if it was a tweet or an email that went between uh, uh, Congressman uh, uh, the gentleman from Florida, whose name I'm escaping now, and, and uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, was not very nice. So, uh, um, so I don't know. I don't. I think most member to do what it takes to become a member of Congress, you got to be a people person. Uh, you really do uh, to do what they do every day. And so I think with members of Congress, it works people to people, face to face, eyeball to eyeball, uh, and at least as of today. The vast number, a uh, vast majority of members of Congress aren't very uh, technologically proficient anyway. I mean, some of them have gotten into tweeting and, and so forth. But I think, it, it, at least for the foreseeable future, um, you're go it's going to be more person to person and not so much, uh, you know, by by social media. Now, when 20 or 30 years pass and you get to the point where, you know, the bulk of member of Congress, members of Congress have grown up in that world, it may be different. But I, I think for the immediate future, it's probably not going to change it very much. I think that last sentence puts the finger on it. It's a generational thing. And the people who are there now are, are not in that generation, but those who will replace them will be. Is that it? Okay, let's see what the reception holds for us. I, but before that, let me thank Joseph Gibson, both for having written this book and for coming here today to discuss it. Thank Bill Frenzel for being our commentator. You'll have a chance to purchase the book if you haven't already, and I bet you could even get uh, Mr. Gibson to sign it uh, upstairs. And let's go up and talk some more about this. Well done. Well, thank you.